This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rubberbank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rubberbank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to RoboTalk's Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. Often we hear that the markets are demanding more from our producers in terms of not just what we're producing, but how it's being produced. What are the sustainability credentials associated with our products? But who exactly are these markets? What is it they are after? And what are the implications of meeting or not meeting their needs? I'm today's host, Blake Holgate, and today we we're focusing on how sustainability is influencing the red meat supply chain and what does it mean for New Zealand farmers in terms of their medium to long-term planning around on-farm investments and farm systems decisions. Today's guest, Justin Sherrard, is in a unique position to provide his thoughts on all of those questions. In his role as Rubberbank's Global Sector Strategist for Animal Proteins, Justin is responsible for the timely and agenda-setting analysis of issues of strategic importance to animal protein companies around the world. He's based in Rubberbank's global head office in Utrecht, but has a very good understanding of the New Zealand market, having been here multiple times to meet and engage with New Zealand companies and farmers. Justin, welcome to the Growing Our Future podcast. G'day, Blake. Good to be with you. And um, gosh, it's a long time since I've been in New Zealand. Another thing to curse COVID for. I hope the that I can get down there and see you um, sometime soon. There's plenty that's changed since I was last on the ground there and um, good to catch up with you about some of those things and um, what they might mean for the listeners. Oh, look, no, really looking forward to this. You and myself have um, had, had numerous discussions on, on this topic and, and other related topics o- over the years and always found your thoughts incredibly insightful. Now, I've got a pretty good idea of, of what your role entails, given that at one point in time I was um, reporting to you and, and on numerous occasions, as I mentioned, have actually co-presented and, and, and done road tours around New Zealand with you. But for the sake of our listeners, are you able to give us an overview of your role and, and what that entails? Sure, Blake. Look, as Global Strategist Animal Protein with Rabobank, I'm responsible for leading the market analysis that we do globally around all of the species, beef, sheep meat, pork, poultry and seafood. I'm leading a team. There's 12 of us at the moment. We're in the major production regions, South America, North America, Europe and in Asia, China in particular as well. Let me tell you what I'm focused on because that's probably the best way to understand what my role is. I'm trying to assess what's going to create material change in the markets and how animal protein supply chains can and should respond to that. So any change creates a measure of opportunity and a measure of risk. We're trying to figure out where is the balance between the two of them and how do we ensure that Rubberbank's clients are focused more towards the opportunity side, but well aware of the risk and how to manage them. We're not advising people on how to run their business. We're informing them on what's happening in the markets so that they can make the best possible decisions in terms of running their own business. We can't understand all of the circumstances around how they run their business, what their business can and can't do. And they're generally very good at that, which is why we're working with them and, and looking to establish these long-term partnerships that we value so much. So 
you know, it's really about interpreting change and translating that into, you know, implications that they can work with. And I think, you know, today's topic, as you've introduced it, you know, there's plenty of change happening, that's for sure. I hope we can get into, you know, where that balance lies between opportunity and risk. Okay, well, let's, you know, before we maybe get on to future change, let's start with the current state. What is currently expected of New Zealand red meat producers from the supply chains that they predominantly supply into? Keeping in mind that, you know, not all supply chains or not all consumers and markets want the same thing. But as I said, I know you have a good understanding of where our red meat products go. What are the sustainability credentials that those particular markets are looking for right now, Justin? What they're looking for today is what they're going to be looking for in the next 10 years and what they were looking for 10 years ago. Fundamentally, it's about quality, quality product, and we can think about that in a couple of ways. I think that one aspect that they're looking for coming from New Zealand is safe. So it's a question of how you define quality. They're looking for well-priced product. You've got to be competitive when you're exporting into global markets. There's always somebody who's willing to undercut you if you're not careful and if you're not competitive. And they're looking for product which is available. And now that's particularly interesting at the moment as we look at the US beef cycle turning and shifting into a contraction, a multi-year contraction phase, but they're looking for product which is available. Now, the definition of those three criteria, quality, price and availability, the definition around those is something which changes with time, but fundamentally that's what they're looking for at the moment. And so when you raise sustainability, I always say, okay, that's still the magic triangle, if you like, we're sort of we're finding our space within that triangle between those three criteria that have always mattered and and that will always matter. And perhaps we're changing or adapting the definition of some of those criteria to fit them. And I think around sustainability, again, it's the quality criterion, which is the one that we're redefining. And we're thinking differently about how to define that. Roughly speaking, that's how I think about where the market is. I mean, we can talk more specifically about that if you want to, but, um, you know, that's kind of how I'm thinking about the market and what the market is after. Well, let's talk maybe a little more specifically around how those credentials within the the quality stall or or aspect of what you've set out have changed from, say, five years ago. I suppose the first question, has there been change? And if so, how has that changed? I think we're on the cusp of some pretty significant change, Blake. And, you know, if we think about those criteria, and around the quality one, I think that the change that we're about to start seeing at big scale is the need for documentation to come with product. And that documentation is increasingly around sustainability, measuring and reporting on what's actually happening, the outcomes that are being recorded there. And look, you and I work for a bank and maybe it sounds boring to talk around measurement and reporting and transparency and those sorts of things. But If the commitments that have been made by the captains of supply chain are going to be realised and commitments also by some regulators as well, I'm based here in Europe where we've just seen the European Union commit to sign into law the the policy around deforestation-free commodity supply chains. So ensuring consumption inside Europe is not associated with deforestation in any, any part of the world. And it's the documentation which needs to be provided that comes with that to say, okay, this is what quality now looks like. And that, I think, is a really interesting area because 
we're about to see big change. We know that it's needed. Everyone's talking about it. But actually, a lot of people are struggling to get started there. Do I have the right measurement system? Am I recording the right metrics? Have I set the right baseline, etc.? It's an area where New Zealand is ahead because you've been thinking about it, discussing it and working on it for, well, probably all of those five years that you just talk about, possibly longer. So what I'm hearing is that in some respects, it's not necessarily significant change in the farm practice or how how red meat is being produced as much as the change for New Zealand farmers might be more around the, the documentation and evidencing or demonstrating or verifying exactly what they're already doing or some potentially minor modification of what they're doing. Is that correct, Justin? Blake, there's a little bit of both. I think right now most of it is around how you access supply chains and who's going to be asking for that documentation, accreditation, et cetera, who's going to be asking for the baseline measurements and the reporting of that. And they are moving towards then providing access only to those who can demonstrate they're moving in the right direction. But there are still some opportunities today and some New Zealand beef processors have been at the forefront of marketing product, which is selling, for example, around um, zero net greenhouse gas emissions. So there are some opportunities. And I think it's great to see those being explored. I don't know how big those niches are going to be. I mean, if you think about marketing in the US, you might consider New Zealand, the whole of the New Zealand's domestic market to be a niche compared with the scale of the US market. But there are some opportunities for people who can demonstrate those sustainability credentials. But I sort of talked about these three criteria because I want to be clear that You've got to work on all three of those things and it's about what you build into that or how you define those criteria that matter. I wouldn't want people to think, oh, all I need to do is say I'm sustainable or prove I'm sustainable and the other things don't matter. The other things still matter. You've got to get product availability right. And again, when you're working in niches, and these are niche markets at the moment for zero carbon type of product, you've got to ensure that you can deliver the product, you know, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, if you're going to convince a retailer to actually stock that, or if you're going to convince a consumer to start buying that. They want to buy it, they want to get it every single time because you hope that they enjoy the product and they feel good about consuming that product. So, Yes, there are niches. Yes, there are those opportunities around, you know, on the positive side, around being rewarded for demonstrating sustainability credentials. But the whole base is moving, is my point, towards actually being able to demonstrate exactly where you are and the direction that you're moving in. But that's what we're just on the cusp of starting to see and starting to dictate access only to those who can do that. And that's where I think New Zealand is in an advantageous position because you've been working on this for It doesn't seem like very long, but this is a pretty fast-moving space. You are years ahead of everyone else. Now, Justin, you mentioned a few times that the opportunities within the niche markets, but obviously still there's a lot of red meat product in New Zealand that goes into, for example, ground beef that ends up in patties or, or, or mints. Is that those markets or those consumers also expecting at least some degree of accountability and evidence associated with the products they're purchasing? Maybe some of them are, Blake, but I don't think that this is about consumers at the moment. I don't think consumers per se are driving it. We might like to say that we're driven by consumers, but actually, if you think about the red meat supply chain, who we're driven by is really the ultimate customer who's a food retailer, a food service company, possibly a food manufacturing company. That's who's actually driving this. These are the companies that have made the commitments. These are the companies that are reporting on those commitments. 
These are the companies who are reporting back to their banks, reporting to their investors to say these are the steps that we're taking towards sustainability because these are the things that are starting to define access to finance, access to capital and access to consumers. So are consumers asking for these sorts of things? Yes, in niche markets, some of them are going out of their way to choose for particular products. I mean, I often refer to the example of organic food I'm not doing routine grocery shopping in New Zealand, so I couldn't tell you, you know, how common organic food is there. But there's a, in most markets, and I think in New Zealand, there's a a well-established niche for organic produce, fresh produce, could be fresh dairy products, could be fresh fruit and vegetables, could be dried products as well, and some fresh meat and and animal protein products as well. There's a well-established niche. It's not huge couple of percentage points of the market, maybe getting towards five, even 10% of the market for particular products. And that's how we need to think about those sustainability products at the moment, those with positive attributes who are marketed towards consumers who demonstrably care and are willing and able to go out of their way to select those products and probably to pay more for them. That's only a part of the picture here. There are those opportunities, but it's about how the base shifts that I think are important. And the base shifting is really about getting access to the market. And that's about what those food retailers and food service companies are doing and how they are going to control access to the market and how they are going to select who's in their supply chain based on who is going to help them to deliver on the commitments that they've made to their customers, to their employees, to their shareholders and to their banks. Are you able to elaborate exactly what those commitments are that you're referring to, Justin? Blake, sure. I mean, a lot of these now are about setting a pathway towards net zero emissions by 2040, 2050, something like that. Um, And a lot of companies are now, an increasing number of companies, including in animal protein supply chains, including in food retail, are not only setting those goals, but they're actually recording those goals on the public record through the Science-Based Target Initiative and will start reporting on their progress. So they establish a baseline, they have to demonstrate to the science-based target initiative that they have a program and that they have a pathway towards achieving the goals that they've set so that the targets are credible, seen as credible. Then they have to establish their baselines and get on with the job of delivering. Now, as I say, you know, the first step is about establishing the baseline and knowing where you are today. Then we move on to the goal of, okay, how do we shift the trajectory towards getting to net zero rather than being at the level that it's at at the moment? That's where this big change is happening in the market. Now, you can call out a lot of food retailers in the world who ultimately are the buyers of New Zealand's product. Now, predominantly at the moment, these companies are in North America and they're in Europe. I think some of them are in New Zealand and Australia as well. But the movement is growing and we're going to see more of them in Asia, more of them in the Middle East as well. And I think that it's actually finance which is going to dictate who's moving down that pathway because there's going to be financiers who are also asking these questions and wanting to understand what capital is at stake here. And why do financiers asking about it? Because central banks want to understand how well the finance system is adapted to whatever the future brings in terms of climate change and is not at risk because of climate change. And just to be clear, Justin, when you're talking about these net zero commitments, these are supply chain commitments. So these food companies are committing to where they're sourcing their their raw products from, i.e. New Zealand farms, are part of that commitment, correct? 
Absolutely, Blake. I mean, if you look at a typical food retailer, you know, 90 plus percent of their full supply chain emissions of what matters, you know, they're only controlling direct control, sort of five, 10 percent of total emissions. So to sort of go out and say, look at this, we're committing to net zero and just shifting a small amount of emissions and leaving what's happening in the supply chain is sort of missing the point. And I think this is the other big development around the commitments which are being made at the moment. You're absolutely right. It's the full supply chain which is committed to that, is being committed to that. This is the dynamic which is at play at the moment. If you're a New Zealand farmer, you probably don't know which the supply chain is that the product is going to or which of the many supply chains is that the product is going to. That's a statement of the situation as it stands. It's no criticism of any farmer. As a farmer, you're selling to a processor. A processor is maybe exporting themselves or selling to a trader. Then in the destination market, meat is being distributed to various buyers, manufacturers, food retailers, etc. Suddenly, we need to know that stuff because suddenly you need to staple that documentation, that information about emissions to the product which is going. So it's not your responsibility as a farmer to be in touch with the retailer and vice versa, but everyone in the supply chain needs to pass on that information. And let me just turn that around for a second and maybe present it in another way. Those food retailers are looking for supply chains that can help them deliver on the commitments that they've made. That's how food retail and food service companies work. You know, it's not for them to say, oh, how much can I actually influence what a farmer does? They're looking for the supply chains to help them deliver. And so that's the opportunity here to actually say, you know what, we're going to step up and we're going to be the ones that actually put you in front of those targets and help you to achieve what you've set out and what you've publicly committed to and help you to achieve those goals. So given a lot of these commitments are climate change or emissions reduction related, Justin, is that increasingly what the whole game is going to be about? Like, how, Where do other sustainability credentials around biodiversity, water quality, animal welfare fit into that picture? It's a good question, Blake, because I think sometimes people accuse the sustainability movement of having carbon tunnel vision at the moment. You know, this is the only issue that matters in terms of what's happening, etc. I don't think like that. As I look at the market and look at the change that's happening, I see other sustainability issues which are also important and where the market and where regulators are increasingly focused. But climate change is leading, greenhouse gas emissions is leading, and I think what we're going to find is we're going to end up with a system which is established to measure and report on greenhouse gas emissions is going to be the system which is also asked to expand to take into account other sustainability dimensions as well. And I think when we're talking about red meat supply chains, I think there's probably three others which are most prominent. Animal health and welfare is definitely a part of it, and that includes use of antimicrobials, it includes actual welfare status, and it includes some demonstration that animals have been well looked after and cared for during their life. I think land use change, deforestation in particular, is the second issue that matters, and I think water is the third issue that matters. Partly that's about water use and recycling and reuse. Partly that's about water quality, you know, water pollution, etc. And depending on which market you're in, there's a mix between whether it's the regulator or the market itself, whether it's these um, supply chain captains that are going to drive things on that front. I think water at the moment feels to me like it's there's the regulators are in the lead. 
on deforestation and on animal health and welfare, animal health and well-being, there's a combination of regulators in the market that are driving. I'd say the market's probably ahead. So I think water probably stands out as an issue. And look, I'm sitting here talking to you from the Netherlands where we're just seeing governments taking very strong steps towards water pollution around nitrification. Um, you're in New Zealand where I know the government has also taken some pretty strong steps around trying to manage water quality within well the whole of the agricultural sphere, not just red meat supply chains. So I'm not ruling out the role of the government in these other areas. It's a combination of government and the market that's making the change. But these other issues will follow. They haven't gone away. And I don't think that, you know, if I look out towards 2030 at how the market is going to move, I think once we get more comfort around progress on greenhouse gas emissions, these other three issues are going to become more prominent in the conversation. So given those pressures, Justin, looking forward to, say, 2030, do you still see red meat as being a protein that is in demand with the opportunity to capture high value? I do, Blake. I think for two reasons. One, it's a quality product. It's nutritious food. We've got systems which produce it safely. We've got consumers who enjoy it. And that point about consumer enjoyment, I think, is really important to reflect on over the last couple of years. We started the conversation talking about COVID, and I don't want to dwell on that too much. But we've seen in the last couple of years people spending much more time at home doing a lot more cooking from their kitchen than they imagined doing perhaps than they wanted to do because food service hasn't been available in the way that we've come to rely on it. And through whatever measure of inspiration, boredom, whatever it is, we haven't seen any evidence that consumers are switching away from red meat. In fact, in some markets, we've seen the opposite. In some markets, you look at the US, beef consumption in the US has been phenomenal. So much was consumed out of home and suddenly consumers are saying, you know what, I enjoy eating red meat and I'm going to do it at home. But that future that and my positive stance towards the future is because I see supply chains starting to change and I think that's an important part of it. So the, the other way of presenting that comment is to say there won't be a future if we're not willing to move in terms of what the market is looking for. And that's not a radical statement. I mean, we're only in business because we're able to produce what the market wants and we're able to do it in a competitive way and we're able to make that available on a regular routine basis and we're able to produce the quality that people want. So it's no different in the future. It's just that the way that access to the market is being defined is that that's what's changing. If we change with it, there's a good future. Given your global role Justin, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on how our New Zealand's competitors are reacting to that change compared to New Zealand, you know, and how well positioned are we and the actions that we're taking or, or working through, you know, what is that pace of change compared to our competitors, I suppose, is what I'm asking. No one's as far advanced as New Zealand is in terms of the measurement of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I'm not saying that everyone's got measurement of emissions down to three decimal places or something like that in New Zealand. That's not the point. The point is that there's a system in place. Everyone understands what's required. We've done the sort of information awareness raising that allows everyone to understand this is what's happening and this is where you've got to be. And people are getting their heads around the idea that they've got to account for what's happening on their farm in this way and they've got to be reporting that to you know, through to someone else down the supply chain or a regulator, et cetera. And I don't want to gloss over how challenging that can be, right? I mean, it's not a straightforward process to do that and to get that right and to do that in a way which is relatively efficient. 
It takes a huge amount of effort and it's taken in New Zealand a huge amount of effort and not everyone's welcomed it and that I completely understand and not everyone's going to welcome it in the future. But New Zealand is miles ahead of any other competitor on that basis. Everyone else is only just starting that process and starting to think maybe this is relevant and it's only that relatively small number of supply chain participants who are focused on that niche market, who are really motivated and moving quickly at the moment. And that I think is a huge difference for New Zealand. So that's one thing that I'd highlight. The other thing that I'd highlight, and this is where I'm less certain about how much progress has been made in New Zealand, but I think New Zealand has the opportunity to lead here should they choose to do it, is to actually I'll use a a business term, commercialise the tools, the technologies, the management practices, which help to deliver lower greenhouse gas emissions. Same product, lower greenhouse gas emissions. So figuring out not just what our baseline is and not just getting into the measurement game, but figuring out how to change the trajectory is the most important competitive advantage in the whole sustainability space, but this side of 2030. And New Zealand has the opportunity to also be leading in that area to figure out how to do it and how to get those new technologies, how to get that innovation, how to get those changes in management practices into the market at scale. I'm just less certain about how much progress is being made on that because there's been a lot of conversation for obvious reasons about the measurement piece, but it's not all about measurement. We've got to think about how we're going to change as well. Look, yeah, I certainly know there is a, a lot of focus and effort is going into that space in, in New Zealand. The next question is is how effective and quickly does that get commercialised and out to be from concept to tools in the toolbox for New Zealand farmers? But I can certainly vouch for that there is a lot of funding and effort going into that space. So I certainly think farmers should be encouraged by that or, or certainly don't want them to have the perception that that's not happening. I fully agree that that will be ultimately how we deliver on some of these commitments that are being made that we simply we simply can't get there with the current technology that, that we have. So there is a technology gap that needs to be resolved and, and I believe it will be. Look, I think the recently created public-private partnership that's working on finding a solution to biogenic methane is a good example of that. Justin, um, the JV includes the government and partners from across the food and fibre sector, including Ansco, Fonterra, Ravensdown, Silver Fern Farms, Sinlay, and, and Rabobank. If you look at what's being committed there, that these partners will contribute around $35 million a year until 2025, with the government matching that contribution. You know, so this results in at least $170 million invested over this time. So, so, so not insignificant. So, like I say, I think that that's a good example of of the type of work that is underway in that space. If if we bring it back down to the farm level, Justin, what can New Zealand red meat producers being considering or, or doing now to you know, best position them for that future state that we've been talking about today? I think it's the point that you've just convinced me of, which is that action is happening in New Zealand. You've got, we've got to shift our minds into how we can continue to be competitive producers and do that with lower greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, in the first instance, this is really just about reducing inefficiency or improving productivity in the system. What are the things that we can do there? Maybe through breeding programs, through genetics, maybe it's through feeding programs as well where supplementary feed is used. What are the programs that we can use to make small adjustments which make a measurable difference in greenhouse gas emissions? 
We've got to get over the hump on measurement, get all of that sorted out and really start thinking about what practices suit me in my business, in my operation, what's going to work for me given the type of animals I've got. Should I be thinking about changing the breeding program? Should I be thinking about different feeding regimes? Should I be thinking about differences around manure management, for example? I think at the farm level, it's all about looking at all of these different areas of opportunity and deciding what's going to suit you best in your operation. I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and invest in these things today or tomorrow, but you do need to understand which are going to work best within your farming system, within your the scope of the business that you have today, and start understanding what it's going to take to get involved in that and to be successful in those areas. Everything looks good on paper, but farmers are practical people. They actually want to see it work and they want to see it work on their operation, on their place, before they're really convinced. And so start thinking about getting involved in some trials, some pilots, etc. What I like, Justin, is throughout the course of this interview, I feel the word opportunity has come up at almost every second paragraph. And I really like that positivity that you've brought to this topic that, you know, right now in New Zealand often doesn't feel like a positive topic. But again, I think bringing you in from that global perspective to provide a bit of context to how these changes are, are occurring in other parts of the world and actually what it means in the in the broader ecosystem has been really enlightening. But I just want to come in on that, Blake. I'm, you surprise me a little bit because the success of New Zealand's agricultural system, and it's been very successful, you know, is that they've been so good at responding to market needs, delivering good quality product, making sure it's always available, doing it at a very competitive price. And that's all we're talking about here. The market's needs are changing. The market's needs are evolving. The success of New Zealand's agricultural system is it's going to depend on the same things. How well do we meet the market's needs? So that's all I'm saying here. The market's moving. You've got to move with it. I think everyone knows that. Look, I was going to ask you for your last two or three key messages, but that sounds like a, a pretty good takeaway to me. Justin, anything else you wanted to add? I'd just say people shouldn't underestimate the value of measurement, the value of data, the value of being able to account for what you're actually doing. You might not welcome it, but everyone is struggling with this. You're ahead in New Zealand. Don't let that opportunity pass you by to, to ensure that you, you get in front because if we just go to how the market's moving, everyone's a little bit uncertain about how this is going to settle and how quickly it's going to settle and how quickly we're going to start moving on this. New Zealand's opportunity is to say, we've got a system and we've got progress. Let us be the ones to dictate how that's going to happen into supply chains into North America, for example, beef, sheep, meat supply chains into North America. And so let us be the one to define that, set the standards and force others to follow what we've already invested in. That, I think, is also part of the opportunity here. So I know people don't welcome all of the changes that are happening in the market. A lot of them are, you know, hugely challenging for all of us. But we've got to move with it. We've got to accept that this is what the market's doing and find our way to be successful in that. If we can do it, I think New Zealand agriculture in general, red meat in particular, has got a great future. Oh, look, I think that's a, a great note to wrap it up on. As I, start, I said at the start, Justin, look, I always really appreciate and, and, and value the insights that you bring to the conversations that we have. So I just want to say thank you for joining us on today's session of, of Growing Our, Our Future and uh, really look forward to having you back here in New Zealand and hopefully the not-too-distant future again. 
I hope so too, Blake. It's been a pleasure speaking to you as always. Good to catch up with people and um, let's hope I can get down to New Zealand sometime soon. Thank you for listening to Robotalk's Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rubberbank can support you to succeed in the future, please go to rubberbank.co.nz. 